This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Ken Charles in today for Mike Simpson. Unless you're listening from Mars or the moon, or possibly even from the International Space Station, and of course on the American side, today is Election Day. So it's kind of a big deal. (laughs) Yeah, it's a really (laughs) big deal. It's kind of a big deal. It's a really big deal. Hopefully when you're listening to this, if you're listening in America, you've already gone out and voted. And while we wait for those results to trickle in, we're going to talk about how if President Trump wins, how will he fight the pandemic in a reelected second term? We'll also talk about Joe Biden. If he's to win, how will he handle the crisis? Do we know, by the way, when the uh, polls close on Mars and on the moon? Um, I guess if you're in the American side, ah. probably somewhere like seven o'clock because everything that makes sense. Everything is East Coast time. That makes perfect sense. You're absolutely right. I hadn't <laughs> thought about that. <laughs> Before we get into election day, what ifs? By the way, we will talk about what's happening now with the benefit of some hindsight. Did anyone get it exactly right? Which countries have had the uh, best response, and how does the U.S. compare? And I guess, depending upon who's elected president tonight, that will kind of be a referendum on how does the United States compare. As part of that, many schools around the country are still closed. Parents are upset. Teachers are upset. Administrators are upset. Even some of our politicians are very upset. We'll look into what it's going to take to get those schools open again. And if you listen to that, you may be upset. You may be upset, especially if you're done with the last Zoom class that you could ever sit through. Also on the podcast, uh, when it comes to travel, a lot of people really miss, uh, I miss traveling, Uh, but not everyone is letting the pandemic get in the way of their travel plans. Wow, I don't know where they're going or what they're doing, but I'm ready to get on a plane and go almost any place. I'm with you. But now let's get back to how countries have been handling the pandemic. Dr. Amy Palumbo is a professor of epidemiology and biostatistics at Temple University. She talked with KYW Charlotte Reese about what can be learned from the different responses to the virus from around the world and how the United States compares. It doesn't seem like anybody was really prepared. I think the idea of a pandemic had been in the forefront of people's minds And I mean, by people, I mean, not just epidemiologists, it's kind of always in the back of our minds. (laughs) But other people, you know, back in 2009 with H1N1 and at other kind of points. But I don't think anybody was prepared for something actually of this scale. So I don't think there's any perfect response out there. You know, it's pretty acknowledged that there was a lack of clear guidance, especially in the beginning. And states were left to fend for themselves and kind of decide what's best and how to approach it, which, you know, we might be able to learn a lot from, but I think it puts a lot of onus on a lot of people using a lot of different sources of information to make decisions rather than providing clear guidance from the experts who have the most up-to-date information at their fingertips. And then, of course, the kind of lack of consistent message because you can have as many policies or recommendations, but you need people to comply with them. And I I think that's where I think that's where the U.S. struggled the most is getting people's buy in on the measures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're saying like people responding to kind of what 
the task force was trying to do in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, that's, and, you know, since it was happening everywhere, I'm always curious about different responses from other countries, and they're all over the place, depending on where you look. Is there any countries that stick out in your mind when thinking about the responses, either because it worked very well or it didn't? There's so many different responses. It's hard to pick. I mean, because every... I guess I'm reluctant to name any because every situation is different. The context in every country is different. Every culture is different. The the size of each country. And I think we see that a little bit here too. The, The timing of when the pandemic really took hold is different in each country. And that really, I think, had a big impact on how people approached, how both the leaders approached the pandemic and how the public responded to that approach. So, you know, we've seen that some countries like Australia and New Zealand and and Canada have have done a great job keeping uh, rates low and it's difficult. So, you know, I I think that, you know, we can look for common themes from those places. And sometimes they might apply here and sometimes they might not. So, you know, like an island country is going to have a very different way of dealing with transportation and, and, you know, kind of travel in and out of the country than a country that's landlocked or, or as big as ours. But definitely, I think one thing that, you know, the countries that have been quote unquote successful have is really robust testing from the beginning or at least, you know, as quickly as possible. Yeah. And you said people being reluctant to follow the guidelines. And, you know, I'm curious because at the beginning when mask wearing was kind of coming about and in places where it's already common, you know, like Japan, do you know like what the pandemic has looked like or if that has actually, if we know, has that made a difference? Because People in Japan weren't like, oh, I'm not going to wear this mask because they already kind of had to. I I know that the evidence is, you know, continuing to accumulate about the effectiveness of masks. So it's really hard to tease apart that role that that one factor had. We have to kind of take the accumulation of evidence, you know, across everything and look at it critically, you know, keeping in mind all of the other, you know, all of the other things that were done to curb transmission. So masks are definitely a part of that. And I guess my main feeling about masks is like, I don't understand, even if even if we don't have, you know, perfect evidence, there's enough evidence that they help. And if that helps us not fully shut down, then it's absolutely worth it. To me, it's just such a small thing to ask of the public. There's been so many measures, and you mentioned lockdowns and different things. Um, what What do you think maybe has been the most effective on a countrywide level? And I know that they're all different. Or what countries do you think maybe have done better than most I think I definitely think countries that have limited large gatherings, I I think, you know, we see that a lot of the quote unquote super spreader events happen at these large gatherings. And so I think that is one thing that we need to that that 
countries that were successful did and continue to do. And it's going to be harder as the weather gets cooler, but limiting, just limiting indoor contact with strangers in general, keeping it, making masks mandatory indoors. Um, I think we've seen even just thinking locally, I know rates are going up, but Philadelphia did after the initial wave, like had done a pretty good job of kind of keeping things low and steady. And as people may become complacent, you know, it's good to keep the mandates in place, but we also need to keep the message about mask wearing indoors, you know, and and lack of gathering a lot of people indoors. We need to keep that messaging going for like people's personal gatherings. (laughs) What does the pandemic response look like if Joe Biden wins the election? And what about if President Trump gets reelected? How do things change, if at all? So let's start with Scott Jennings. He's the CNN political commentator and former special assistant to President George W. Bush. He was asked by Charles where the president succeeded and where has he failed so far? Well, I think uh, I'll start with where I think he failed, and that was principally rhetorically. Uh, I think throughout the pandemic, he has frequently said things that have undermined his government's position on public health standards, such as wearing a mask and social distancing. It doesn't mean that people aren't doing it. It's just rhetorically, you would expect the president to be in sync with his government and his government scientists about those issues, and he often hasn't been. And so that's that's been a failure. But he's had some real successes. Uh, he used the Defense Production Act to get ventilators out. Uh, the government has done a good job of getting PPE out to people and healthcare facilities and workers that need it. And most notably, I think the Operation Warp Speed to develop a vaccine, uh, once this thing is done, the historic speed at which this will have been developed. We don't make medicine this fast in the modern world, and yet we're going to do it here in America, and we're going to distribute it, and we're going we're gonna beat to vac- uh, beat this virus because of the Operation Warp Speed. So that's his greatest success. And frankly, it's the thing we have to have to get to get America back to normal. So no matter who wins the election, they're going to end up benefiting from Trump and the congressional response on Operation Warp Speed. You know, but uh, on the economy again, uh, the world, it's not just us. I mean, the world, as you know, is, is doing rather poorly. Western European countries are not doing very well economically because of the pandemic. Um, and in order for everybody on the planet to sort of regain our economic strength, it is going to take an awful lot of global cooperation. Is that kind of global cooperation, based on the previous four years, likely in the next four if Mr. Trump gets reelected? Well, I think all nations want to cooperate on getting the virus under control. And as soon as there's a vaccine, I would expect there to be mass cooperation on getting it distributed throughout the world. It's going to take some time, I think, to produce and distribute all the doses that would be needed to, to go around the world and all around America. Uh, but I think that's the next government's job is to lead the world in defeating the virus with the American-made vaccine. So yes, I would anticipate uh, a lot of cooperation on that front. I don't think anybody's uh, happy about the fact that we're still dealing with this virus. And so, uh, and everybody knows what you said is true. In order to get back to normal economically, we have to beat the virus. And so I think ultimately that'll be Donald Trump's greatest success on this is 
uh, setting up the system where we could get a vaccine faster than we probably would have otherwise gotten it. So what will Joe Biden do if he wins? Lexi Barrett is associate vice president of the nonprofit group Jobs for the Future. She served as a senior policy advisor that was on the White House Domestic Policy Council under President Obama. Lexi, how does Joe Biden deal with the rough economy right now in the middle of this pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think what you would see first and foremost out of the Biden administration would be a real attempt to address the pandemic head on. I think you've heard this rhetoric out of the Biden campaign that you can't fix the economy unless you address the public health crisis that the country is facing right now. And so I would expect to see that really front and center of what a Biden administration would be looking to do. And, but then once you get past the public health element of really trying to get the pandemic under control, I, we've seen a lot of signs from the Biden administration of really wanting to put some significant investments into both the businesses that have been suffering, but also the individuals. Looking at some of the benefits that had expired for unemployed Americans over the last couple months, reinstating those looking to how to help small business, and then also looking to deal with the impact on state and local governments that have just seen really dramatic decreases in terms of their tax revenues. And that has an impact that ripples through an entire community because those are also where a lot of jobs come from um, and where a lot of economic vitality is born. Coming up after this short break, what is it going to take to get all schools back open again? Lots of kids across the country, they're still sitting in front of their computers all day doing remote learning, (laughs) among other things. As their schools remain closed, districts are taking no chances in risking an outbreak on a campus. Not sure what all parents are thinking of that, although a lot of them are not very happy and want their kids back in school. But what's it going to take to get all of them back open? Dr. Mark McClellan is the co-author of a Rockefeller Foundation report outlining COVID-19 testing protocols in schools. He talked to KCBS's Stan Bunger about the best way to get kids back into the classroom. I think what we're seeing with schools that are reopening, and you know, many have not. Uh, half the largest districts in the con- half of the top 50 largest districts are still doing generally in-person learning, but more have reopened. Um, we have been working with other researchers at Duke University that are tracking what's going on in many districts. And, um, Sam, with some good precautions like wearing masks, including for for younger kids, um, like uh, distancing, so maybe um, classrooms that aren't quite spaced so close together, and with um, good uh, hygiene measures, hand washing, uh, uh, hand sanitizing, Many of these schools have been able to reopen, even when there's COVID in the community, without much um, transmission of the virus. So just for as as one example, uh, one big district in uh, in North Carolina, where we have probably a higher rate of community um, spread than many parts of California right now, Uh, 35,000 students uh, have nine weeks of experience now. Uh, They did find cases, you know, over 100 cases uh, altogether because they're out there in the community. But but with these precautions in place, only eight 
cases of infection spreading from a student to, to someone else or a, <clears throat> excuse me, a faculty member to someone else in the school, only eight, and no cases of children transmitting to teachers who were, again, wearing masks and using face shields and using these modifications that can make um, uh, education more feasible. So we think with um, steps like those and with uh, additional availability of, uh, of testing to help um, detect uh, outbreaks early, even people without symptoms, uh, there is a good path forward for reopening schools, and it's so important for uh, for student um, education and, and development. Uh, we really think this should be a, a high priority now, and we hope that the kind of experiences that we're starting to see around the country as schools reopen successfully with just minimal cases of uh, transmission, and we learn better about how to prevent the transmission while giving kids uh, um, the you know an in-person educational experience that can uh, can work well. Um, we hope that's going to spread. Okay, next question. Uh, I'm an elementary PE teacher. Our school's probably going back to on-campus teaching in January. I've been told when we go back, I'll still teach virtually, but also be on campus to help with students at arrival and dismissal. I'm concerned about contacts with so many people. Is that a valid concern? Yeah, contact, uh, close contact especially, is a valid concern. Um, most districts are taking care as they think ahead to reopening in the weeks ahead to limiting the amount of close contact that occurs. In some cases, that's going to be unavoidable um, uh, in in lab situations. I think the uh, person who asked the question was saying that some of the instruction is going to be virtual, and so I'm sure that's designed to help uh, keep that distance in place. But uh, we do know, as as we're seeing from some of the districts that are reopening, uh, that steps like um, uh, wearing masks uh, when when you're in close contact, uh, especially if you're not uh, exercising or something like that, those um, make a difference in trying to limit the amount of time in in, uh, physical close contact. Also, Sam, we're starting to see around uh, California more use of uh, tests on a regular basis to help also uh, detect if there's any out, uh, outbreaks that could happen from people who don't have symptoms, either children or adults. So the um, uh, Los Angeles School District, working with the city of Los Angeles, is piloting a, a large-scale program now, and I think that's going to provide some, some added help. So uh, by January, uh, when that reopening occurs, we should know a lot more about how to prevent spread and really appreciate um, uh, teachers like the one that you're uh, talking about uh, being willing to to try to uh, adjust what they're doing in this pandemic. Um, I wrote about this recently. I think um, we need to view teachers as absolutely critical parts of our essential workforce. That means providing them with good masks, providing them with good support so they can go back to school confidently. Well, Dr. McClellan, thanks so much for the time. I've enjoyed it, and I hope we can talk to you again. Great to be with you, Stan. Okay, take, take care. care. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Mark McClellan. is the former commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration and the director of the Duke Robert J. Margola Center for Health Policy, co-author of a Rockefeller Foundation report outlining COVID-19 testing protocols and uh, plans for K-12 through schools. The big holidays are coming up. Remember those? Thanksgiving, Christmas. Well, some people will spend them at home this year because of the pandemic. Many others just simply will not. So you mean I can't use the pandemic as an excuse (laughs) not to see my family? (laughs) No, go ahead. You can use it. Oh, man. (laughs) Well, I guess we're going to find out because so many people aren't going to use that excuse and they're going to be traveling to visit their family and friends. Or maybe they're just going to use the excuse, not go see their friends, and head off to Hawaii. Cindy (laughs) Richards runs TravelingMom.com. She spoke with WBBM's Rob Hart about what holiday travel looks like in the global pandemic. 
There are people who feel like um, they can do it safely. And, you know, we all know there's a lot of pent-up demand to see grandma and grandpa right now. We haven't seen our family and the people we love for going on a year. And and it's Thanksgiving and it's Christmas. And we, we really, really want to travel. Um, so, I, you know, it can be done. It can be done safely. Um, flying is uh, is a little bit of a challenge. But it's all about extra planning, extra PPE, and extra precautions these days. Well, it's, it does seem like uh, the, there's an acceptance of the fact that if that people are going to travel over the holiday period. In fact, the Archdiocese of Chicago announced that the uh, first two weeks of uh, school after Christmas break is over is going to be two weeks fully remote to allow people to isolate or to quarantine uh, if they are, in fact, coming back from vacation. It's just a concession to the fact that their people are going to travel uh, this holiday season. Well, and and uh, the quarantine rules are a really important piece of this. I mean, it's just one piece, but you need to know not only rules for coming home, but you need to know the rules for where you're going. Is uh, you know, are are you supposed to quarantine when you arrive in another state? It's uh, especially right now. It's much easier to travel in your own state, but if we have relatives uh, elsewhere, it's that doesn't always work. Um, you know, we just posted a. I, I just this morning published a new story on TravelingMom.com about is flying safe now and and tips for how to make it safer for you. Uh, you know, things like I mean, they're going to require you to wear a mask. There are airlines that are even saying if you don't wear your mask on the flight or you don't wear it properly, that you could not only get kicked off the flight, but you could get banned from that airline or maybe from flying altogether domestically. For maybe the, ever for the you know for a very long time anyway so so there's some specific things you need to do there are ways that you can protect yourself. Um, my business partner just traveled to Kentucky where her father has some um, health challenges so it's particularly touchy. She did a lot of testing. She tested before she left Connecticut. She tested when she arrived arrived in Kentucky, um, and she got a test even in the middle of her trip, just to make sure that she hadn't contracted something on the flight. So, you know, there, there are ways to do it, um, It, but it's not, you know, you're not going to just be able to get on to, to say, look, I think we should go and see Grandma and Grandpa. Let's book a flight because there's a seat on the plane and let's go. It's not the way you travel in 2020. Yeah, this is, uh, it's it's not uh, November of 2019 anymore when uh, you can just uh, look at Expedia, get on the plane, and and if you're even going to a family and you have the procedure down cold, uh, there's still a lot more that you need to know. Very quickly before I let you go, uh, do you have to know the cancellation policy backwards and forwards? You, you should always know all of the policies backwards and forwards. And just because you knew them last week, you should check them again today because everything is a moving target these days. The rules are changing. The cancellation policies are changing. The prices are changing. Everything is a moving target in travel right now. Millions of people across the country are stressed because of the pandemic and, of course, today's election. Maybe you're one of them, especially if you happen to be a doctor. A poll from the American College of Emergency Physicians finds the pandemic is taking a toll on the mental health of emergency doctors. 87% reported feeling more stressed since the pandemic began, and 72% reported more burnout. Nearly half said they're uncomfortable seeking mental health services, and 57% said they would be concerned about their job if they looked for mental health treatment. What do all those numbers mean? is the pandemic is darned stressful, mm. add the election, add your kids not in school, add no place to travel or wanting to travel, 
and it's a heck of a Michigas. <laughs> How about well, that? Well, you know what? It, what a great time to go to a movie if you could. If you could. <laughs> you know, it's why Netflix, and you know, invest in Netflix. Not that I'm going to give you stock information, but I'm spending a lot of my life on Netflix. Well, you can find this Radio.com original podcast and others on Radio.com and the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. And be sure to hit the subscribe button. It's the one that you go, and then it makes a noise and you, you subscribe. Thank you.